As you well know, we now live in a culture that is hostile towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a country, we have shifted from a period of relative appreciation for God's word and identification with his church to a period of utter contempt for utter contempt for, for the truth contained in the best of news. And, and now through the phenomena of deconstructionism, even the church has turned inward on itself and has begun to devour all the doctrines that it once held dear. All that was once considered good and rational, all the truths that we took for granted, have become the disdain of society, and in some cases, even the disdain of the church. Now, this apparent reality leaves us with a question that I'm sure is burning in your confounded hearts. Where does this leave us? Where does this leave us as Christians, and where does this leave this, us as a church? Well, oddly enough, it leaves us in the same position as the signatories of this letter, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It also leaves us in the same position as this fledgling church that they were writing to, the church of Thessalonica. You see, in the first century church, they were constantly at odds with the surrounding culture, with the Jews and the pagans alike. Paul here in verse 2 talks about the suffering he and Silas endured in Philippi as a result of preaching the gospel to this, that city. They, they, they were stripped of their clothing. They were, they were beaten. They were ridiculed. And they were jailed without a trial. Uh, incidentally, these acts against them were in violation of their rights as Roman citizens. So, so when you as Americans feel like your religious rights are being violated, well, you are in good company. You're in good company. At, at least you haven't been stripped of your, your clothing, beaten, ridiculed, and jailed without trial. But, but, but Paul and Silas were. Now, does all of this sound kind of familiar to you? Does all this sound kind of familiar? It should. Who else was stripped of their clothing, beaten, ridiculed, and jailed without trial? It's not a trick question. Who? Jesus. Why are we then surprised and bent out of shape when the surrounding culture hates us? We're Christians after all, right? If the surrounding culture hated our Christ, why would they not hate us? This line of question only makes sense. Remember, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of what? Not what, but who? Because of me because of Jesus. Jesus goes on to say, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why are we then surprised when we encounter opposition 
to the gospel in our modern culture. Jesus wasn't surprised. He expected it. Paul and Silas weren't surprised. They expected it. Not only did they expect it, they were prepared for it. So they they moved on to Thessalonica. They moved on to Thessalonica where they, as Pastor Brian pointed out a few weeks ago, suffered oppression again at at the hands of the Jews and Gentiles alike. Yet yet despite the the, the fierce persecution of the surrounding culture, they were successful in their efforts to reach the culture. How was that possible? How was that possible? How how were they able to successfully reach that culture amid such adversity? As we turn our attention to Paul and Silas' example in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see that in order to successfully engage a hostile culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must speak boldly, we must speak sincerely, and we must speak humbly. We must speak boldly, we must speak sincerely, and we must speak humbly. First, we need to speak boldly. Look down at verse 1 with me. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much oppression. Despite the mistreatment and opposition they faced in Philippi, Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica and preached the gospel with boldness. With boldness. While in Thessalonica, they, they, they encountered increasing opposition from the Jews who recruited street thugs and pagan politicians to persecute them. And still they preached with boldness. We know this from Acts 17. Now, I don't know about you, but their boldness seems somewhat counterintuitive to me. It seems somewhat counterintuitive. You would think that after being stripped of their clothing, beaten, ridiculed, and jailed without trial, that they would be a tad bit hesitant to go back for more and more and more and more. But that's exactly what they did. You see, we know from Paul's own testimony that he endured countless beatings. Additionally, he endured imprisonments and stonings. The dude was even shipwrecked three times. Who gets shipwrecked three times? You you would think that any sane person would say to themselves, you know what, this boldness thing, it hasn't really been working out very well. Probably not the best of ideas. I think I'm going to shift, change course, tack into the wind. But that's not how Paul thought about it. That's not how he thought about it. So what was it? Was, was Paul just insane? Was he a masochist, a, a glutton for punishment? On the contrary, Paul was quite sane. He was quite rational. During the uh, 1989 Tiananmen Square protests, a single man initiated a standoff with 18 Type 59 battle tanks. Now, I remember watching this on television. I'm sure a lot of you do. I was, I was no more than nine years old, but I remember this distinctly. 
He, he stopped an entire convoy of tanks dead in their tracks. When the lead tank tried to maneuver around him, he shifted from side to side to keep the convoy from moving forward. At one point, he climbed up onto the tank and began yelling at the man inside. Now that's bold. That is bold, especially when you consider the fact that just the day before, literally hundreds if not thousands of Chinese people were, were killed by the Communistic Party. That is bold. Now, was this man insane? No, he wasn't insane. He just knew what he believed. Listen, you don't initiate a lone standoff with 18 communistic tanks unless you know why you're doing it. This man's boldness wasn't crazy. This man's boldness was informed. He knew why he was there. He knew why he was standing off of those tanks. And that knowledge, that knowledge informed his boldness. And Paul's actions were equally informed. Paul knew why he was there. He knew why he was standing off with his opponents. And that knowledge informed his boldness. What was the knowledge informed his boldness? Well, he tells us. First, he said, we had boldness in our God. Boldness in our God. Paul's boldness was not rooted in his power to persuade. It was not rooted in his self-assurance or his endurance. Paul's boldness was rooted in the person of God. Paul understood that he served the God of the universe. He understood that God was sovereign. He understood that God was just and would one day set right all injustices. So he was emboldened. Second, Paul knew his boldness flowed from the power of God. He said, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. These words called the Thessalonian believers to recall their own testimony of how God had worked in them. Moreover, they hearkened back to chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul said, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in, pow in, the power, in power and in the Holy Spirit. Paul understood that there was a supernatural quality to his boldness. There was a supernatural quality to his boldness. Do you remember what he famously said to the church of Corinth? He said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. As American Christians, I believe we have lost sight of God's power to awaken the hearts of the lost. We, we look around at, at the surrounding culture with all its, uh, its counter-biblical ideologies, and we wonder, how can anyone be saved in our day? Well, in the same way a bunch of idol-loving pagans were saved in Paul's day, through the power of the Spirit. We look at the decline of the American church, and we conclude that revival is not likely. However... Was it any more likely in Paul's day? When Paul entered Thessalonica, there were far fewer Christians there than in America today. 
Incidentally, did you know that per capita, there are more people attending church in America today than attended church in 1776? The power of God can do a work in our culture still today. It can. But we need to operate in the power of God if we want to see the work of God done in us and through us. Third, Paul knew his boldness was on point. He said, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. As modern evangelicals, we have a dangerously narrow understanding of the gospel. Dangerously narrow understanding of the gospel. We tend to think of the gospel solely as the good news that God has saved us from our sins. Now, God did indeed save us from our sins, but the gospel is so much more than just the story of our redemption. In Mark chapter 1, we're told Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was Jesus' message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Well, the good news of the gospel is that, that the grace has come to all who believe in faith. It is so much more than that. The gospel, the gospel is the good news that Jesus has initiated his sovereign rule and reign over all creation. And if we repent and believe, we will have the honor of being subjects in his kingdom. The danger of a one-sided gospel, a, a gospel that focuses solely on the redemptive aspect of the gospel, is that we will inevitably substitute Jesus' kingdom with worldly kingdoms. That is the root problem with Christian nationalism. That is the root problem with Christian nationalism. Now listen to what I'm saying not what I'm not saying, okay? Listen to what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. I am not saying nationalism is bad. If you cut me, I bleed red, white, and blue just like the rest of you. I don't love Rocky IV because I'm a Dolph Lundgren fan, right? I love Rocky IV because I want to watch Sly Stallone kick some communist butt, okay? And I can even appreciate some aspects of, of Christian nationalism. Like, if you just want to see our faith restored to a place of honor and privilege that it once held in our country, I can appreciate that. I can. However, the clear and present danger of Christian nationalism comes in the form of substitution. Listen, when we see America as God's kingdom or some kind of new Israel, we are playing with theological fire. Now, the fact that I'm even mentioning this might sound ridiculous to some of you, but that is exactly the sort of false teaching propagated by teachers like Jonathan Kahn, a name that I have heard spoken in this building. And some of you might be like, wait, wait a minute, we shouldn't be like calling preachers out by name. No, we should. If they are a false teacher, we should. Okay, I am one of your pastors, and as one of your pastors, it is my job to defend the flock, not play fetch with wolves. 
Okay, Brian, Pastor Brian has, has called him out as well. It is dangerous teaching. And why is it so dangerous? It's dangerous for this reason. You will never fully live in the power of God's kingdom when you are living in the power of worldly kingdoms. If your faith rests and dies on what happens in the White House, then your faith is hopelessly misplaced. If the gospel is going to take root and flourish in our culture, it will not be through political will and determination. You've heard me say this dozens of times, the hope of the world never has, never will reside at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Never. And you know what? It's okay. Why is it okay? Because Paul and Silas' bold preaching was successful not because of their alignment with the civil authorities, but in spite of the civil authorities' hostility towards them. As modern Christians, we're very concerned about what seems to be the inevitable persecution coming to America. Maybe overly concerned. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered that maybe just maybe, persecution is exactly what the Lord intends for us. If you look back through the corridors of church history, you will find the church always grew most wildly under intense persecution. And it declined when it was fat and happy. A number of years ago, I, uh, I was listening to an interview with a Chinese nationalist pastor who, uh, I guess, some of the restrictions on the church had been rescinded on the Chinese church. You know, when I was growing up, it was the underground church. All the churches had to meet in secret. And all of a sudden, they could meet publicly. And he said in this interview, he said, you know, I almost find myself longing for the days of persecution because the church was more serious and resolved in its faith. Fascinating. Fascinating. If the gospel is going to take root and flourish in our culture, it will not be through, be through political will and determination. It will only be through the full two-sided gospel of God. It must be in God, it must be in the power of the Spirit, and it must be on point. It must preach the gospel, and we must speak that gospel boldly. Second, we need to speak that gospel, not just boldly, but sincerely. Look at verse 3 with me. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. In Paul's day, there were charlatans who would travel from town to town using deceptive forms of rhetoric to swindle people out of their money. They, they would peddle all sorts of new and enticing philosophies about how to live life. They were kind of like the self-help gurus of their day. By contrast, Paul makes three claims about the gospel that, that set him and Silas apart from these pretense-laden frauds. 
First, he said, our exhortation does not come from error. Okay? Paul's exhortation was free of misguided notions. He is not peddling some sort of delusional philosophy about your best life now. Paul doesn't appeal to current trends in philosophy or the petty demigods of the Greco Roman world. On the contrary, Paul is promoting the truthfulness of the gospel, that your best life is yet to come and will only be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the creator of all things. And in the meantime, in the meantime, you may suffer all sorts of persecution. And some that's, in some ways, that's what this book is about. Is suffer is in, is in faith, enduring suffering. Second, he said, our exhortation does not come by way of deceit. We speak not as pleasing men, but God. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Paul's exhortation was free of deceptive rhetoric, devices. Paul isn't interested in making people happy. He's not interested in just making people happy. He's not interested in making people happy as much as he is winning over their wayfaring hearts. Over the past three or four decades, many evangelical churches have sold their theological soul to be more attractional. In a bid to win over converts and grow their little kingdoms, Many pastors have softened or downright compromised the gospel in order to make it more palatable to the people outside the church. As a teenager back in the 90s, um, I attended a seminar, seminar on evangelism. And the presenter argued that we shouldn't talk about the blood of Christ when presenting the gospel because it will sound weird and turn people off. At face level, that sounds reasonable. At face level, that sounds reasonable. There's only one problem. How can we present the gospel without talking about the blood of Christ when the blood of Christ shed for the remission of our sins is the gospel? Maybe the problem isn't with the weirdness of what we preach, Maybe we just need to be honest with what we believe and explain what it all means, right? We do that with all kinds of things. Why would we not do it with the gospel? In an article written by Tim Keller called The Decline and Renewal of the American Church, Keller identified the reason for for the mid-century decline of the mainline denominations. And he he pointed to a a key observation made by a liberal legal scholar named Dan Kelly in his 1972 book, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. Okay, so Kelly was a a a legal um, philosopher who was part of the mainline churches. And he saw the mainline churches declining, and he saw conservative independent churches growing. And he wondered why this was happening. So he set out and he wrote this book, and he, he said this. He said, for the first time in the nation's history, most of the major church groups stopped growing and begun to shrunk. Shrink, sorry. 
Most of these denominations had been growing uninterrupted since colonial times. Now they had begun to diminish, reversing a trend of two centuries. Now, Keller goes on to explain this. Tim Keller, that is. He goes on to explain, he says, Kelly argued the conservative churches continued to focus mainly on spiritual needs and supernatural, large-scale cosmic meetings. The reality of God, the truth of Jesus' resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit for inward change, the efficacy of Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins, the eventual revival, arrival of the kingdom of God. Liberal mainline churches, on the other hand, had adapted heavily to modern secular thought. They rejected the concept of miracles, of being born again by the Spirit of Jesus, of Jesus' bodily resurrection, of a trustworthy Bible. They adopted, in Kelly's words, relativism, lukewarmness, and individualism, all of which he identified as evidence of social weakness that is marks of a weakening community that cannot coalesce powerfully around a life shared in faith, meaning forgiveness, love, and spiritual growth in God. It continued to decline because even the children of liberal Christians, as Kelly pointed out, had failed to see any real usefulness to the Christian church. In other words, they compromised the theological underpinnings of the gospel, and in doing so, the church died. The church died. Tim Keller wrote this article in the final year of his life because he realized that evangelicalism was flirting with the same fate. Incidentally, there was some concern that by joining the Evangelical Free Church of America, we were, which we did last year, that we were somehow going to compromise our conservative theological positions. I want to assure you this morning, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, quite to the contrary, part of the reason we, we joined the EFCA was to uh, affirm, if not double down, on our core convictions and beliefs. Why? Because we gain nothing by softening or compromising the gospel. Absolutely nothing. We can look at history and see that. We gain nothing by softening or compromising the gospel in order to make it more palatable to the culture. To enter into the kingdom and to live in the kingdom, you must abide by the king's edicts. To enter the kingdom, you must adopt the culture of the kingdom and be transformed by it. Now, what I'm going to say next is not in my notes. It's just free advice. Some of us as evangelical Christians, we have very hard hearts. And we think that we have been assimilated into the culture of the church or the culture of the kingdom, when in reality, we've been assimilated into the culture of social clubs. Social clubs that coalesce 
around social and political ideas. If we want to see the world change, if we want to see the power of the Spirit form people's hearts through us, then we need to let that power continue to form our hearts. We need to have malleable hearts. We need to be people who are willing to let the Lord enter in and do His work in us. To reveal the blind sights, the misguided notions. To to reveal all the embedded all the embedded beliefs, they're not actually of God. We never outgrow our need to grow in the Lord. And we need to have soft and malleable hearts to let Him form us and grow us and have His way in us. That is a hard amen, but it's a good amen. Finally, Paul appeals to the God who examines our hearts. You see, his exhortation was free of misguided notions. It was free of deceptive rhetorical devices. And it was focused on God who examines our hearts. One commentator notes that the clear implication is that the Thessalonians themselves serve as the primary evidence that Paul and his companions have been approved by God. And see, throughout these verses, Paul is constantly appealing not only to his own testimony, but the testimony of the Thessalonians who had authentically encountered Christ through Paul and Silas's teaching. They themselves were the authentication of Paul's preaching. They were pure in heart because they had been purified in heart through the gospel. Therefore, they could testify to the, to the, the pureness of Paul and Silas's heart. They themselves were the fruit of, of, of faithful hearts, faithfully judged by God. So, so far we, we've seen that in order to successfully engage a hostile culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ... Uh, We must speak boldly. We must speak sincerely. And and finally this morning, we're going to see that we must speak humbly. Look down at verse 6 with me. Paul writing says, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Now, I've said it before, and I've gotten my hand slapped for it. Oh, well. Some of you all, some of you all just need to get off of Facebook altogether. Because you are doing more to spread the bad news of your anger than you are the good news of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. There is no judgment in that. There's no judgment in that. There's only empathy. Anger is a reality in my life. It is something I struggle with on a daily basis for real. My kids are like, amen, preacher be preaching. (laughs) But here's the thing. James has told me that my anger, it doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. 
So when I'm angry, I need to look for the check engine light on the dashboard of my heart. Because something is probably misfiring under the hood. Because nine times out of ten, it is not righteous anger rumbling in my heart when I'm upset. Now, you might be looking at verse 6, scratching your head and wondering, where does verse 6 talk about anger? Well, I'm contextualizing. I'm contextualizing. You see, as modern Christians living in a world that is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a tendency to leverage the authority of Jesus Christ to justify our anger with the surrounding culture. But Paul said, we didn't leverage our authority when we came to you. And here's the thing. Even Jesus didn't leverage his authority in that way. When Peter drew out his sword and he struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear, what did Jesus say? It's Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword away. For, for all those who take up the sword, or they're going to die by the sword. Or, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? <laughs> Jesus could have called down 72,000 angels to vanquish his enemies. That is 6,000 angels for each one of the disciples. But he didn't. That story always puzzled me as a little kid with my seven-year-old sense of justice. I would have called down 72,000 angels to save me and another 72,000 just to watch them squirm. I could never get my head wrapped around Jesus' thinking. However, as I grew older, I learned of Matthew 20, 28, where Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give him his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived a sacrificial life of servitude. He modeled a life of sacrificial servitude. More than any other person in human history, he could have leveraged his authority to subjugate the culture around him. Caesar, Alexander the Great, nothing compared to the power that Christ had at his disposal. He could have subjugated everyone, but he didn't. He tended to the needs of the poor. He healed the wounds of the down and out. He washed the feet of his pride-stricken disciples. And he loved on his enemies. And Paul and Silas lived a sacrificial life of servitude too. And they also modeled a life of sacrificial service. They went from city to city spreading the gospel at great personal expense. They endured countless beatings from people whom they only sought to love. And Paul was ultimately executed, perhaps beheaded, under the rule and reign of the Roman emperor Nero. But Paul knew he served a greater emperor an emperor who was universally sovereign, who would one day set all injustices right. 
Who did Jesus, Paul, and Silas model this life for? They modeled it for us. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, well, they're going to be the ones that are going to find it. And Paul said, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. You see, the cruciform life, a life of servitude shaped by the reality of the cross, it is not an option, it's an expectation. It is not an option, it is an expectation. Here's the thing, I think, I think there's a lot of us today, especially on the more conservative end of the stick, that we look at that and we hear that and we just think, that just sounds like a bunch of hippie-loving nonsense. But it's not. It's certainly not weak. It takes a lot more strength and power to restrain yourself than to lash out in anger. It takes a lot more strength and power to turn the other cheek than it does to throw a blow back. We get far too angry, far too worked up. We have an amazing power at our disposal that, that we don't tap into because on our own self-centeredness, selfish power, and I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else, we want to act autonomously, and we want to be the one who sets all things right. Only God will do that. The cruciform life, a life of servitude, shaped by the reality of the cross, is not an option, it's an expectation for each one of us. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that opposition for the church is opportunity. Opposition is opportunity. I started to realize this during COVID and the lockdown in 2020. So many churches were just trying to hold on to normalcy. And in doing so, I think we missed a ton of opportunities to minister. If you look at the New Testament church, it is constantly, constantly confronted by opposition. And you will see the Apostle Paul. You'll see the Apostle Peter. You will see James. You'll see Jesus taking that, that opposition, embracing it as opportunity. There's great power in that. I said in a sermon a while back that if we want to see, if we want to see revival in our culture, we have to see revival in this room. If we want to see God change hearts through us, then we need to see him change the heart that's in us. Like Paul, we need to speak boldly. Like Paul, we need to speak sincerely. And like Paul, we need to speak humbly.
And if we speak the gospel boldly, if we speak it sincerely, if we speak it humbly in the face of opposition, I'm convinced, convinced that will become an amazing opportunity to reap the harvest for the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you entered into this world. And in doing so, you immediately entered opposition. Even as a baby, even as a baby, Herod sought to take your life. And Lord, you lived a life full of opposition. You were the man of constant sorrows. But you embraced every opposition as opportunity. You spoke boldly, sincerely, and humbly, and you modeled for us a cruciformed life. Jesus, we believe and we confess this morning that you can work in us and through us. Would you give us the grace and the mercy that we need to have hearts that are malleable before you? Transform us from the inside out and do a work in us and through us. Amen.